0: We'll look there in just a moment. Uh, One of the most powerful words and the most important words in our vocabulary that we rest upon is the word hope. The word hope. Um, At the couples conference, I was talking to uh, one of the assistant pastors of a church that, that had brought some people there. And uh, it was after one of the sessions and that this word came up, the word hope. And both of us were talking about it for about 10 or 15 minutes about how people needed hope. And really, that I think the value of the conference that we do there in Pigeon Forge is, is not so much instruction. Uh, most of the people that come, they already know what to do. Uh, it's really not anything new. If you've been saved for any length of time, you, you kind of know what to do. But it's a it's a conference of encouragement and one to give you hope. And so when you leave, you're encouraged and you're inspired uh, to, to do some biblical things, but to give you some hope. Uh, this past week, I was uh, looking in the Bible and, and counting up. I didn't actually read each passage because that's not the thrust of the message. I'm going to deal more with the solution than the problem. But almost 150 times uh, the word hope or one of its derivatives is used in the Bible almost 150 times. And one of my favorite places is in Romans 15:13. we won't look there, where God describes himself, calls himself as a God of hope. He's a God of hope. When I was uh, about 18 years old, there was a church, a little tiny church, smaller than ours, a, a very small church. And they had a revival meeting, and uh, the evangelist made a statement. And I thought, that is a fascinating statement. I wrote it down in the cover on the fly leaf of my Bible. And here's what he said. He said, God never discourages anyone. Because I had never thought about that. But he's right. God never discourages anyone. And uh, maybe you're here today and you just, you you need some hope. If you're facing bad news, you need some hope. The worse the situation, the worse the news, the more hope that you need. Uh, many years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago, I, I haven't <laughs> counted the time because I don't like to think about it. But when I was struggling to to get a diagnosis for this disease that I have, I had gone to 11 different doctors and specialists. And I don't mean one time. Uh, Some of them was one time, but most of them were over and over and over again. And um, I'm like the lady there, and I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, that had spent all she had going to the physicians and uh, trying to find out uh, what was going on and and just extremely discouraged and so I uh, told Paula one day I said I I think I just want to go uh, get some uh, testing again once again it had been many many years that I'd had some testing to see about my allergies and I said I just want to go get a fresh batch of tests there and so I went in and Underneath the title of the doctor, allergist, it said immunologist. I didn't even notice that. And she's the one that found out what was wrong with me. And I'll never forget, I remember the day quite well, Paula was in there. She asked me to come back the next day. She found out something was wrong with one of the swabs. If anybody knows, they stick you, and I'm going to discourage some of you kids. Well, I'm not going. It doesn't hurt. But uh, they, they put these little places on your arm. They used to do it on your back. But at least now, I think they mostly do that on your arm, and uh, it wasn't responding at all. She said, "Well, something's wrong here," and she knew what was wrong that day, but she wanted to confirm it the next day. But she didn't tell me that day. So I want you to come back tomorrow, and I want to do something else. And so we came back the next day, and uh, she she waited forty five minutes for the culture or whatever to develop, and she came back in and she said, "Mr. Johnson, uh, we know." what you have, and she told me, and I was so uh, happy because it had a name, because I've been to all these people over years, and uh, I said, well, if it has a name, it has a solution, and, uh, and it didn't quite have a full solution, it will in heaven, but, but it, it's an amazing thing, the power of hope uh, to buoy you, B-U-O-Y, to, to, to lift you uh, to, to to make a change in your life. Uh, most of you know that my sister has uh, stage four cancer, and the cancer is advancing slowly, but but advancing. And uh, she's been to all of these doctors, and they've given her different treatments. And now, uh, the treatments are, are not working, and so they're they're one by one. Those are are kind of off the shelf for her, and and she just has very a few things left. And so about nine months ago, we were having a conversation in her living room when I was up there visiting with her in Delaware. And we were talking about, because she has such a, a marvelous attitude about this journey uh, that she's on. And we were talking about the, the importance of the conversations that we have with ourselves. Someone said the most important conversation you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. Now, I don't think that's fully true. I think the most important conversation you have is with God in His Word as He teaches you. But I do think it right behind it is the one that you have with yourself because you are what you think. Someone said you aren't what you think you are, but what you think you are, and that's true. And so these conversations that you have with yourself, and then right next to that, are the conversations that, that other people have with you. And I told her, I said, well, well you know, Melanie, I said, when I, when I went through this, and I said, still a little bit sometimes when you're sick, I said, uh, I was about to say everybody, and that's not true with everybody, but people have opinions. And I said, they'll share those opinions, and they expect you to follow them. And I said, what they don't understand is many, many other people have given you uh, their opinions. And and sometimes those things may work, but the the problem is that those things kind of stack up. And when you try this and this and this and this and this and this over time, it becomes discouraging. And there's a hopeful way to introduce those things. And she said, yes, I've kind of gone through that. And we... The conversation went on off into hope, not just from conversations you have with yourself. And she said, you know, Ricky, it's so important to have hope. And she said, I'd love to have people around me that speak hope into my life and speak hope into my life. Hope is so, so important. Uh, I I read a couple of stories this week I want to share with you. Uh, years ago, some researchers, this is an older experiment they did but it's so fascinating to me about the importance of hope in in someone that is undergoing hardship and so they couldn't do this on humans as you see here in a moment Uh, you can see the analogy and so they got laboratory rats and they got two sets of laboratory rats and they got two separate tubs of water and uh, in one one set they put in the tub of water and, and they just left them there. There was no intervention. They just left them there. And within an hour, within an hour, every single one of those rats died. They died. They took the other rats. They put them in the other um, tub. And uh, occasionally, they would lift them out. And then put them back in. Now, what they discovered is those rats lived 24 hours. And the people, the researchers that did the experiment said it wasn't because of the rest. They said it was because of the hope. Hey, maybe maybe there's a way out of this. And as I began to read that story, how that is true for us. That if, if if there's some if there's some light here, if there's some hope here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this in, in a little bit more. One other story that I came across just just utterly fascinating. In fact, I I didn't know about this. I looked it up. I love the Northeast and have been up into Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and Rhode Island and those areas. It's beautiful beautiful places, especially in the fall and the winter. Paula likes the fall up there, but she doesn't like the winter. I say that, but she's never been. Uh, I want to talk about rebellion in women for a minute. I'm going to change, I feel led to change the message. I tell, I'm tell. just kidding. But I do say, you would love it. She's no, I, I I get cold. I said, well, I'll, I'll stick you by the fire. I'll, I'll build a fire. I think that she's scared about me building a fire. So maybe it's me. It's not the cold. It's me building a fire. But... Uh, there's a place called Flagstaff, Maine. Has anybody ever heard of that? Have you? I never heard of it. Flagstaff, Maine. This is interesting. In 1950, they were going to uh, build a dam, and to do that, they had to reorient some water. And there were a couple other smaller towns there, but the, the main town, it was not a large town, was Flagstaff. And this came from a book called Unfinished Business. This man was telling this story to a group of people. And a man that was in the group heard him tell it. And he recorded this story. And I went and looked it up. And then I went on Google Earth and looked at it. And and by George, there it was. It was so fascinating. You could see the dam. You could see the water. It's only 20 feet, 28 feet deep at its highest depth. So it's very shallow water. Enough of that. Anyhow when they discovered that they're going to flood that entire town, so the town's going to be gone, uh, months and months and months and months ahead of time, they begin to cease all improvements and repairs to the town. Uh, any road improvements, any anything. They said, hey, the flood's coming. We're just going to stop fixing things, improving things, repairing things. So week by week, day by day, the whole town became more and more dilapidated until people became discouraged. And the man that that lived in that town made this comment and the man that was in the group heard it and then he wrote a, a little book about this. And here's what he said, the guy that wrote the book heard the man that lived in the town. Here's what he said, this statement of that situation. He said, where there is no hope, In the future, there is no power in the present. I thought that's a profound statement. It's true. Where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. There must be hope in the future to get you through this grind. Now, I'm not talking about rah-rah hope. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about that stuff. We've all had our our fill of that. No, listen, hope begins at the cross. The word hope in the Bible does not mean wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get a a good seat at the ball game. Or, you know, you're you're at one of these banquets and they've got different cake around and say, "Oh, oh, I hope I get that cake where I sit. That, no, that's a wishful thing. No, the word hope in the Bible means an expectation. And that's a hope whereof I speak today. Where there is no expectation for the future, there is no power in the present. And the, the answer to, to discouragement, the answer to a lack of hope is a cross of Jesus. Now, one of the thieves of hope is death. And people consciously or subconsciously and more consciously if you live longer and uh, your generation begins to die off and you begin to, if you're in one of these Facebook groups with your graduation class or you grow up in the hometown where you graduated from, and you see the obituaries like like I do where you see your friends begin to pass away or you're even called upon to do their funerals like I am. We had a, a visitor here recently. In our church, he's a good friend. And I, I did the funeral for his daughter. And he told me, he said, when, when I die, you're going to do my funeral. And And you begin to talk about these things. But certainly, if not consciously, at least subconsciously, listen, there's this fear. There's this hoping, but at the same time, the hope is squelched because I don't know much about this. And one of the most beautiful words of hope ever is this is that Jesus, listen, Jesus died so that you might live forever. Jesus died so you can live. But you can live forever. You know, I was talking to Merlin back there and he was talking about how he missed my family. He began talking about my dad, and I said, Well, you know my daddy sat right here where you're sitting. This is that's where my dad sat. The wall was right back there. And uh, my son Jordan was in town. He lives in Birmingham right now. And uh, he was at the house last night, and Paul was away. And he said, do you miss Nana? That's what he called my mother, his grandmother. He said, Daddy, do you still miss Nana? I said, oh, yeah, I think about her every day. But I have hope. I have an expectation. I have a full awareness that I'll see my daddy. He's been gone this year. It'll be 14 years It's past December. It was two years because, listen, you remember these things when you care about people. But I have a hope in my heart, a full expectation that I'll see them again because Jesus died so they will live forever. And I will live forever. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I live so that you can live. And so those times when I go to the cemetery to visit them just out of respect, and to tender my heart, some people don't do that, and that's okay. I'm not scolding you, but don't scold me because I do it. Some people well, I don't want to do that, they're not there. Well, I know that. I know they're in heaven, but it just reminds me it's all that i the memories that I have of them, and it's all it's all good. I visit other people, at the cemetery, too, not just my parents, but I know that I will see them again, and one of the well, the greatest fears that people have is what's going to happen when I die. Let me show you a scripture before we get into the answer. The book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I showed you this again, but I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that means a human race, that we have bodies, we have skeleton, we have flesh, we have blood. He, that's the Lord Jesus, also himself took part of the same. Jesus took a body, why? That through death, so that he could die, so that he could die on a cross. Now, why did he want to die? So that when Jesus died, his death was the death of death. And that was his resurrection too, You can't, but you can't be resurrected till you die. That through death, his body, look at this, he might destroy him, that is the devil that had the power of death, the word "destroy" there means to make idle, to make inoperative. I remember I had a Bible teacher in college, both Tim Knows and Fred Appman, and uh, he had this deep, gravelly voice. You think I talk slow? Dr. Appman talked real slow, and and he always had—I can't do it, Tim. He he always had his hand like this, something like this, and he talked like this, just full of wisdom. About six foot seven, a Greek big man played college basketball and the word there destroy means a knockout punch and i remember i was sitting there in class i thought well i like that description i just wrote it down in my bible a knockout punch that he might knock out the devil he has no authority and deliver them look at this when jesus died for us he delivered them who through fear, look at this, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The word delivered there means to be released. What are we released from? This bondage, which means we're in slavery to fear, to fear. The cross, the cross is your answer to your fear of death. And you can be released from that fear because of what Jesus did at the cross. I say I wish. I I really don't wish. It was too personal for that. And I perhaps should not share something, but I think she would have me to share it. Um, Eric and Debbie's daughter, Rebecca, just uh, a few weeks before she went to heaven, when I sat down there with her and stayed for several hours and uh, said, would you like for me to read some verses on the way out to their home? I began to think about some passages I could read. And uh, I was at liberty to ask her because we had always gotten along well. So would you like me to read about heaven? And she said, yes. And she leaned forward and she was she was eager and her eyes were just, Intense and just laser focus and drink, drinking in these words. There was no agnostic feeling in her heart. She believed these things. And she had hope. Listen, she had hope. Not a wish, I hope so, maybe. It was an expectation. It was an expectation. And my friends, you sit here today, you say, well, that that said one day, if Jesus tears, you're going to be there. you're going to need that hope, but jesus Jesus died so you can live forever, and He has removed the sting of death and the fear of death, hell, and the grave. Somebody said one time, and I agree with him i 'm not afraid of death, it's a process." <laughs> It's a question mark. I've never been that path. Psalm 23, Jesus said, He'll be with us. He'll comfort us. He'll he'll take us through there. Man, He's walking us through that journey. You know the Word of God. We've been looking at the Bible, at the words of Jesus on the cross. There were seven separate things that He said. And when Jesus was crucified, He wasn't there alone. I don't mean all the crowds that were there, the soldiers and the priests and the bystanders, as they walked by. I mean up on the hill, there were two two criminals, two thieves, one on each side of him. And as I began as I began to read these words, what they they taught to me about was hope. And I I uh These are words of hope, not I hope, so I wish, but expectation. In Luke chapter 23, look at verse 32. And there were also two other malefactors, that just means very wicked criminals. Other places in Mark caused them thieves. They may have even murdered people in the robbery. They were led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, here's the first statement that was said from the cross. And said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And I want to stop here. You know who heard those words clearer than anybody else? These two men beside him. They were closer than anybody. And they heard the Lord of the universe saying to those that were jeering and taunting him. And by the way, they were doing the same. We won't look at that today, maybe next week. But they were taunting him too. And they heard him say, Father, forgive them. Verse 35, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, deriding him, derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews." These criminals, as they were on the left and right hand of Jesus, as they began to scorn him, he was on the cross for six hours. They heard him. They saw him. They saw his face. They heard his kindness. He didn't say a lot. And they saw the superscription. They saw what was written there. They understood the implications of it. Verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself. And us. Now, other passages, and I'll show you at another time, both of them at one time were doing the same thing. But the other, that is the other malefactor, the other criminal, the other thief, answering, rebuked him, saying, "Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And this is the title of the message. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I want to give you uh, four truths about salvation. We want to talk about salvation. But I just want to give you the first one this morning. Number one, if you want to take notes, write this down. The simplicity of salvation. The simplicity of salvation. Notice what the thief said there in verse 42. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, just because something is simple doesn't mean it's simplistic. Salvation is simple, but it's not simplistic. The deepest, most wonderful... Thought you will ever have is salvation. It is so profound, it is so wide, it is so deep that you will not be able to fully comprehend it in heaven. I believe that all of heaven will be about trying to understand the wisdom of God and establishing salvation for us in the heart of God, the love of God, and the fact that He came to die and to love sinners. That's what will precipitate our worship I believe. It will be who God is in his wisdom in his glory and in his love. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed you were not purchased you were not bought with corruptible things. What are these things? As silver and gold as money. You can't buy your salvation with money. Early on, um, I don't know if they still do it, but in the early centuries, even up until not too long ago, the Roman Catholic Church was selling pieces, pieces of the cross that Jesus died on. You say, really? No. No. They were making money off of wood. This is a cross that Jesus died on. Oh, I'll shell out some money for that. How do you think St. Peter's Basilica in Rome got built? That's not my purpose to to hammer those beliefs other than the fact the Bible says, you were not redeemed by corruptible things as silver. You You can't give offerings in a church or buy something. Or from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers. That's, that's religion. You can't earn it by your life. That's been passed down by traditions. You can't buy it with money. You can't earn it by the way that you live. But with the precious blood of Christ. We sang about it this morning. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Look at this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now the word foreordained there means to know beforehand. That means that before Adam and Eve sinned, that God knew they would sin. That means that before the foundation, before God ever created the world, He knew they would sin. And I, I can't go too much into it right here because it's not the thrust of the sermon, but I'm trying to get you to see this thought. Listen, salvation is simple, but it's not simplistic. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible talks about the beast and the Antichrist. In the middle of the tribulation, people worship him. Revelation 13, 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. That's the Antichrist and the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Look at this, slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means in God's mind in God's mind that Jesus had already died for us before Adam was ever created before you were ever born all salvation is simple but it's not simplistic you say brother Rick I, I don't understand that I don't either i'm just kind of giving you a taste of it because when i go through this and i say the simplicity of salvation I, i'm not i'm not short ending god he's a marvelous god He's a wise God. He's a mighty God. Did you know that when salvation, the plan of salvation was God's idea, and it was so marvelous that, that God did not have to compromise His character of righteousness and justice to save you, and the only way that He could do that and allow, how can, how can a righteous God allow sinful people into heaven? Well, the price had to be paid. Somebody, the wages of sin is death. The only way you had to have a sinless sacrifice. And so Jesus came and lived a sinless life. And he came in your stead as God, the son and the son of God. And he came and he paid that price. And he offers, this is a simple part. It's not simplistic. And he offers it to you. In Romans chapter three and verse 26 The Bible says to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that means righteous and just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, he's not compromising his justice or his holiness, because at the cross, you not only see the love of God, you see the wrath of God, because Jesus was punished. For our sins. There's a movement today in theology which doesn't like that. The vicarious suffering of Jesus. They say, well, that's, that's harsh. Well, it may be harsh. It's pretty ugly. And when you study Calvary and you see what all Jesus did for us, it is harsh and it is ugly. But that's what sin is. The beating and the spitting and the pulling of his beard... I told you a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 52 that his visage was more marred than any other man. He didn't look like a man on the cross. And he did that for you. But he bore the brunt of your sins and my sins and everybody yet to be born. So that you could go to heaven and he would not compromise his justice and still be able to justify. Look at this. Look at it. And be the justifier of him who believe it, look at it, who believes in Jesus. Now you see the simplicity of salvation in Luke chapter 23. Notice in verse 42, when the thief says, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. So hold it, preacher. That's not the sinner's prayer. I mean... The sinner's prayer is, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died for me. That, he, he didn't pray the sinner's prayer. The word remember there is the same word in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you come to offer your offering unto God and there you remember that your brother has ought against you. What does remember mean? It means you, you recall something comes to mind. It's the same word in Matthew chapter 26 when Peter, uh, he heard the, the, the cock crow and for the third time. And he remembered that Jesus said, the rooster will crow three times. You'll deny me. He went out wet bed. He, 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 he came to mind. What is the thief saying? He said, Lord, keep me in mind. Keep me in mind. And notice what Jesus said in verse 43. He answered his prayer. Verily I said to you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You know, there, there are people that doubt their salvation because they cannot remember exactly what they said. And they've struggled with this. They say, well, I, I can't remember. I, I didn't say the sinner's prayer. and I, I can't remember exactly what I said. Well, did you say, Lord, remember me? You don't have to say that. The whole point of the idea here is something that was simple. It was something that was broken. It was something that was coming in faith. It was something that was coming in humility. Something in coming in desperation. Something coming in faith. Lord, I'm in trouble. I'm going to hell. And I'm dying. I'm desperate. I need you. Remember me, because I, I I want to go into the kingdom of you. Would you remember me? And the Bible says there, when Jesus' second statement on the cross, Verily I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus answered his prayer. Jesus told a parable, and I think he told the parable, but it may have really happened. In Luke chapter 18, about two men that came into the temple to pray one day. A Pharisee and a publican. And the publican, the sinner, the man who had cheated people on their taxes, the one that was despised, and he knew he was a sinner. And Luke eighteen thirteen, standing afar off. He, look at this. He would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He didn't even deserve to pray. He couldn't even look up to God to pray, take a posture of prayer but he smote upon his breast and he didn't say, remember me. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Just have mercy on me. And Jesus said, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the religious man For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Because far more than you getting the words right is your spirit of humility and faith and brokenness and saying, God, I need you. My life is a train wreck. I'm in trouble. I don't have any hope. If I die, I'm going to hell. I need you to save me. Save me. Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And thy house, the same promise, is good for your family. Now I want you to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say believe in. There's a difference in believing on and believing in something. It's old illustration, but it's true. I can say I believe in that chair. I believe in this chair to hold me up. But until I believe on, I believe on the chair is my faith exercised. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is putting my full weight on Him. Some of you believe in God. You believe there is a Jesus historically, but you've never put your full weight upon him. You've never come to him and said, if I go to hell one day, it's Jesus' fault. Because I'm not trusting my good works. I'm not trusting my baptism. I'm not trusting my church membership. I'm not trusting anything but Jesus. I'm putting my full weight upon him. Let me show you another text here that shows this in such an incredible way. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that means your works, keeping the Ten Commandments, there shall no flesh, no flesh, there shall no person be justified in his sight, in God's sight. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. No flesh. No flesh. Nobody will go to heaven with one wit, by saying, I'm in heaven because of something I've done. Nobody. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show you that you sin, not to help you get to heaven. It's like a ruler. When you take a ruler, a straight ruler, and you put it by a crooked stick, it just shows you how crooked the stick is. When I read the Bible, it shows me how crooked my heart is. The law is not there to save me, it's to show me how crooked I am. But now the righteousness of God, look at this, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. How does God give us his righteousness without the law? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the intent of the preachers in the Bible. Look at it, even the righteousness of God, which is, look at, by faith, Of Jesus Christ, and and pay attention to these words, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And I have these underlined in my Bible. The righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ is unto all. It's unto everybody. It's for everybody. It's sufficient for everybody. Jesus died for everybody. But it's only upon all that believe. Just because you know the facts doesn't mean you're a Christian. The devil knows the facts. There are no angels that are redeemed. But it's upon them that believe the simplicity of salvation. You see this criminal up there hanging beside Jesus. He's read, he's read the banner. He's heard the words. And even his vocabulary, he says, Lord, says unto Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man has a kingdom. You see the faith birthing in his heart? And Jesus says, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus sets agreement intellectually. The word confess means to say the same thing as, I believe Jesus is God. I believe He's the Lord. That's an intellectual agreement. I believe He's deity. And shall believe in our heart. Now, this is a volitional agreement. This is a heart agreement. Now, head faith comes before heart faith. And I believe in my heart that God hath raised Him from the death. And now, now the shift goes from and in intellectual faith that Jesus is God, to I claim him as my own, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, this heart faith, that, that I'm believing upon him, that I get the righteousness of God. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Yeah, I can talk all day long, but until something comes into my heart, now I can tell people something's happened. And I don't have time to labor this idea. But for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him, that is Jesus, shall not be ashamed. The word ashamed there has the idea of disappointed. You won't be disappointed in Jesus. He, he, he won't disappoint you. He won't let you down. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto him. All that call upon him for Whosoever shall call, look at this, on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is his name? It's Jesus. That's his name. And and the name Jesus means Savior. I'm I'm not coming up to him and just saying, yeah, I believe in God. I think I need some religion. No, when I'm asking for a Savior, it means that I'm a sinner, it means I'm drowning. I need a life raft, I'm dying on a cross. My heart is going to stop beating in just a few minutes. I need hope. For whosoever shall call upon Jesus in the name of the Lord shall be saved. John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. There's a new birth. There's a change. You've been born again. And notice the birthmarks. And everyone that loveth him, that is, loveth him that begat, that is, you love God, that begat you, loveth him also, that is, begotten of him. What does that mean? I love the one that begat me, and I love his begotten. I love God, and I love his people. Those are the birthmarks of the child of God. First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is a record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Look at it. Look at the simplicity of this church. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you have Christ? If you have, there's been a transformation. doesn't mean you're perfect. But it means you're different. Do you have Christ in your life? Have you ever come to Him in the simplicity of your soul? It may have been in your bedroom by yourself. It need not be in a church. You don't even need to remember the words. But do you remember the moment? Someone said, and I think there's validity to this if you can't remember, if you cannot remember that you asked God to save you, how do you know that you did? Can I say this? I'm scared when people say, well, I can't remember what my parents told me. Well, I've always been a Christian. No, you, know, you haven't always been born. No, there were, you have a birthday. And if there is a head faith before there is a heart faith, I'm going to talk to you more about this next week. There was a time of conviction. And this man was under conviction. There was some turmoil. And I know conviction is different for a six-year-old And a nine-year-old like me, I was under conviction than there is for a 30-year-old. They're they're for different things. But if there is no conviction, there's no conversion. But I'm going to tell you, if the devil is just beating you up because you can't remember the vocabulary, but you can remember the conviction and, and you can remember crying out to him for mercy and just desperation... The Bible says, "Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Psalm one hundred six and verse four: "Remember me, O Lord, with the favor, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. Visit me with thy salvation." You must come to the place where you have nothing to offer God, but if it's to be, it's up to Him. All you have. Is humility, all you have is just a broken life. The thief could only cry for mercy. He could do no works. He was never baptized. He couldn't join the church. At that point, he couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. He could not repay those that he had stolen from, that he had offended. The only, listen, the only thing he could do was to cry out for mercy. And Jesus heard his cry. And you may be here today and you say, well, what do I need to do? You just need to say, God, have mercy on me. I'm so sorry. And he will save you today. Maybe you're not even in the room. You're watching this by video. Ten years from now, he can save you. He can save you. I read an amazing two or three little sentences by A.W. Pink. And here's what he said. "The thief." could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through each hand. And he could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life, for he was dying. All he had was Jesus. And some of you think you can add to it by coming to church and claiming baptism. I think not. Romans 4, 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, his cry for mercy, his desperation. Oh, Lord, remember me. His faith is counted for righteousness. It's not to the one that works. It's the one that trusts and rests in him. I'm almost finished my testimony as you know when i became a christian i was very quiet and as i came forward and i talked to my dad's best friend there at the altar on a sunday morning we opened the bible and he went through the gospel with me and i knew him well and wayne said to, we finished, would you like to trust Christ today? Oh, yes, I would. I've been under conviction for a week. I could have got saved a week ago. I didn't say that. And I know now I want to be saved. Yes. We bowed our heads. He said, I'm going to lead you in prayer if you would. You trust Christ. He said, dear God, I didn't say anything. I never prayed you for an advice. Very quiet, introverted. He said, dear God. I didn't say anything, but I wanted to be safe so bad. And in his wisdom, he said, if you don't want to pray out loud, pray it in your heart. He said, dear God, I said, in my heart, I said, dear God, he said, I am a sinner. I said, I am a sinner. And I prayed that prayer every bit in my heart and I meant it with all of my heart. On February the 18th, 1968, God saved a little boy and I was a sinner and in the essence of that moment I was saying Lord I need you remember me and so I wasn't confused and have to go back and say well am I saved because I didn't get the words right no that precious man didn't confuse me by saying you have to jump through this hoop and you have to know he made it simple it's just between you and God My wife struggled with her salvation for years, and I won't go into all the reasons why. She came down that aisle right now. We had talked for a number of times about it, a number of times. And I saw the torture in her face. She was 29 years old just before she was 30 years old. The preacher's wife, the pastor's wife. She had won people to Christ, and I knew why she was coming. Paula's a people pleaser. She grew up with a difficult father. We came over here and we knelt right here on this front row where you guys were, there were pews then. And I put my arm around my wife. I said, Paula, here's what I said. And very kindly and tenderly said, You know what to do. Because I didn't want to add another rung in the ladder. I don't want to give the devil any more ground. You know what to do. And she cried out to God and she trusted Christ right there. Many years ago, a company that produced cakes, they came out with a, a mix that they said is going to be revolutionary. And so all you had to do was to add water. They said, this is going to be our bestseller. All you do is add water. This is many, many years ago, decades ago. It didn't sell. Just a handful of the product moved. And they were upset they put a whole lot of money into this. And so they began to do some research. And they found out that people weren't buying it because they didn't believe it. They said the cake won't taste good. So they recalled it and they changed it. And they didn't change a thing in it, but they changed the directions. Here's what they did. They said, add one egg. That's all they did. You still put the water, just add one egg. And the thing became a big hit and a big seller. Because people don't like simple stuff when they say, that's too easy. Now I'm finished, but listen to me. There will be more people in hell because salvation is too simple than it's too hard. Because God did the hard part and he offers you to come. All you have to do is to come to Jesus. I uh, did a funeral years ago and uh, I didn't know that there was a classmate of mine sitting in the back about two years later, in the meantime, he had gotten very sick. In fact, he had cancer. And a friend of mine said, would you go visit this man, this friend of yours, a friend of mine, that we went to school with? I said, yes. He said, he's dying. I said, I'll be glad to do that. I went to his home. I hadn't seen him in 20 years because I didn't know he was in the back of the funeral home that day. I did the funeral I went and I knelt down by his bed. His wife was up in the bed with him. She was weeping and I could tell he's not going to live through the night. He was a big guy. He was a strong guy. He didn't have any place for God in his life. He was known for drinking and living a hard life. I got down on my knees by his bed and I began to talk to him. I said, you know, they tell us that one of the first senses you have developed in the womb is the hearing and the last to go. And I've seen that happen when I go into intensive care units, when you talk to people. I've seen that be true. Well, there was no response. His wife crawled up in the bed beside him on the other side and held his hand and his head and began to weep. I talked to him about my mom and dad and our family, and I had his other hand. I said, hey, I told him about our mutual buddy. He came, told me to come see you said, you're not doing good. I'm going to tell you a story. And I told my conversion story when I was a little boy. I told him about how Jesus came for him and how he loved him. And I said, I know you don't feel good and you may feel like you're not going to make it. But he wants to save you. He wants to change your life right now. And he can take you to heaven if you will trust Jesus as your Savior. And I read verses to him. I remember reading John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. that Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I prayed for him. Had my hand in his. And I said, if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, would you squeeze my hand? There had been no response facially or anything. He was a big man. he began to squeeze my hand. In a, in a partial coma, state, he began to squeeze mine. He was listening. About six hours later, he passed. I did his funeral. Walked into the funeral home, and they had him there all decked out and a, a big beer can in his hands because that was the life he led. Put that old boy on his deathbed said, Lord, remember me. But I want you to understand because you may be here, you may say, well, I think, I think that's a route I'm going to take. Because that thief. But remember, there were two thieves. Don't gamble with your soul. I want you to bow your head with me, would you? I wonder if there's someone here today that would say, Preacher, God's speaking to me today about my soul. I don't have a hope beyond the grave. You said that Jesus died so I could live forever.